right, everybody. So very excited for today. We have a great guest lined up. I'm about to call him in a second. Um, but let me first say that, uh, well, his name is David Owen, and he is the author of a f- several books, uh, several about golf, um, one called The Making of the Masters, which we're going to talk about. And also, he um, he apparently wrote a book that had the words Adventures in Golf in the title, which I just found out last night. So I am going to uh, offer him royalties, I guess. Uh, let's call him right now. Where is his email? Um, phone number. How is everybody? You having a good day? You having a good morning? So let's see. No, that's not it. Coming up. Writes for the New Yorker a lot. A lot of those shouts and murmurs articles. I don't know if you know. I love those. They're like the comedy bits, you know? I mean, the guy is just a genius. I'm not even sure why he agreed to take my call. But uh, here we go. I got his number here. Speakerphone. Just doing it old school, you know? A mic into the cell phone. That's how I do it. Phone's ringing. Hello? David, hi. Good. How's it going? We're just we're just recording. It's just all happening. Great. <laughs> Great. Um, well, uh, so you're you're uh, you're in Connecticut or upstate New York? I'm in Connecticut, about okay. 100 miles north of New York City. 100 miles. Is that like a, a metaphor, or is that like a <laughs> just reality? <laughs> it's a literal distance. <laughs> All right, well, why don't we skip straight to the Masters? I mean, I have so many questions. Um, let's start with just give me a general, how did you get involved in this project? You're, you're basically the uh, preeminent scholar of Augusta National. Is that, is that a correct way of referring to you? What happened was in the mid-1990s, Stevens, who was the chairman at Augusta then, began to worry that all the current members uh, – that all the members who remembered the founders of Augusta National were, were going to die and that the current members wouldn't have any uh, direct knowledge of what Clifford Roberts in particular was, was had been like. Cl- Clifford Roberts was the co-founder with Bobby Jones of the tournament and was the, was the genius of the tournament, and the, the, really the creator of the tournament and of everything that we think of in, in many ways as modern golf tournament. So Stevens, Stevens was very interested in in having some record of what Roberts had really been like, because if you, the stories about Roberts are all, they're just, you know, the, the standard ones that sports writers tell are, are not based in fact and are, and as often turns out to be the case, the real stories are much more interesting than the, the sort of made up exaggerations that float around. So, uh, I, the, the club gave me complete access to all its archives. Uh, I, would go down for a week at a time and go through stuff that like many old institutions, they had lots and lots of things that they didn't know they had, uh, because they, because of the tournament, they had kept careful tournament records, at least going back, uh, to 1934 when the first tournament was, was played, but they had all this other stuff too. And it was the kind of things, it was just stuffed in file cabinets and in boxes in basements and it hadn't been thrown out, thrown out, but nobody, nobody had really sorted through it. And uh, so I spent a couple of years, uh, you know, periodically going down there uh, and playing a lot of golf down there, but also uh, going, talking to members, talking to people, talking to golfers, and then going through this vast archive of stuff. 
which wasn't an archive yet, but this, these these file cabinets full of stuff. And there were, you know, there were things like um, somebody found it was a, a Bobby Jones instructional film strip from the early 1930s that had been the rolled up film strip had been stuffed into a crack in between two bricks or concrete blocks in the, <laughs> the in the dining room. And when they did a dining room renovation, they found it. And, you know, part of it, the part that was exposed was painted over with, with this light blue paint. But there it was. And there, you know, or there would be, uh, you know, there were some early color negatives from 1947 that were just in an envelope in the bottom of a file cabinet drawer and nobody had seen them. But, but mainly there was, you know, there's all this correspondence, uh, Roberts, between Roberts and other people, Roberts and Jones, Jones and other people. And, um, I was able to, um, I saw a lot of things that nobody had seen before. The people at the club didn't even know existed. And they, and so, uh, my, my book, which is called the making of the masters is, I, I can still say this. I think it's the only really authoritative history of the tournament and the club that's out there. It came out 20 years ago, but it hasn't, I mean, there's stuff in there that you can't find anywhere else. I mean, I have so many things running through my head. I just like, well, first off, I mean, how, how long had you been into golfs when they, when, when Stevens reached out to you? Uh, let's see. It was, it was about 1995. So it would have been four years, three or four years. Oh my God. So he basically calls you and he's like, uh, Hey, question. Did you want a golden ticket uh, to heaven and back? Had you played Augusta? He asked two people, the editor of Golf Digest and a British golf writer named Peter Dobriner, who they would recommend, and they recommended me. And the, uh, I had my... He asked Jerry Tardy or someone else? He asked Jerry Tardy, right. And they recommended me, and I had, I had written about them. I'd written a piece for... Uh, I had just written a piece for Golf Digest, in which I, Golf Digest had sent me out to play the 10... Every couple of years, they put out this list of the 100 greatest golf courses in the United States. And they sent me out to play the top 10, and they didn't know yet what the top 10 would be, so I had to play 15 or 20. And it, I did it in a bunch of trips, and I played. It was great. It was like I told him, you know, if this ends my marriage, so be it. I, I want this assignment. <laughs> but one of, the, <laughs> one of the places, one of the courses on that list, of course, was Augusta National, and I played there. Uh, I played, played there with a member and wrote about it. And uh, Stephen, so Stevens had read that, and he was he was okay. Even though I said in that that I said a lot of the members in the clubhouse looked as though they were sitting around awaiting word of the outcome of the Civil War, he um, it, he didn't mind, he didn't mind that, and he had a sense of humor. Anyway, he had me come to Little Rock to talk to him to see if I was um, if I would be suitable for this project, and uh, we hit it off, and we talked about um, we talked about what a fee would be, and I said. And, and we agreed, and we agreed, and then I said, but, you know, I said, you know, that's all fine. I said, but what I really, my real interest in this is I'd like to play the golf course. And he said, oh, you can play the golf course. And I said, well, I'd really like to play it a lot. And he said <laughs> that I could play it. <laughs> he said that I could play it as often as I w wanted to. So the typical deal would be I would go down for a week you know, with my golf clubs, and I had an office where I would work with the help of two people who, uh, with, of a secretary and, a, and the woman who was then the, arch the sort of the, unofficial archivist and, and this is in the 90s right this is what year uh late 90s yep so yep, this is like pre-tiger uh, this is this is baggy shirts me. this is pre-tiger tiger has not played professionally yet tiger, yes tiger was just a he was he was an awesome amateur he'd been 
he was he was definitely known, but he wow. had not won his first Masters yet. So golf was still sort of like steadily growing, but it hadn't like there was no explosion yet. Right, he, golf had not become cool yet. Um, right, which is was definitely what Tiger. He won. Tiger won the Masters in '97, and when I was still working on the book, came out in 1999. So it was at the just right at the the right at the at the beginning of on either side of Tiger's emergence. Side note: Were you the there car. in '97? Yes. Oh man, on Sunday. It was pretty. It was pretty exciting. Oh man! Really, I mean, the whole thing. I was just. It was amazing. Uh, and the uh, you know. You look back on it now. Tiger is incredible, and there was something I did in the two thousands. I saw this. Yeah, you go through, and there were I can't remember how many years this was through. Several years, four or five, six years in the two thousands, when Tiger had enough points in the world golf ranking to be both the number one and number two best golfer in the world. So you could have <laughs> taken his, <laughs> you could have taken his season and cut it in half, and both of those halves were better than the next person on the list. Um, and he didn't even, you know... That's like it, lapping. That's the golf version of lapping. It is. It is. He didn't play that many tournaments. Uh, yeah. So it was, it was astonishing. I mean, it was really... He was unlike anything. And it was it was, it was was amazing. Well, he's and winning. Very he's at 20%. It was very, very exciting to be there when he was emerging. Yeah. He has like a 20% uh, win ratio. Yeah, I think in his prime it was even better than that. Yeah. And, you know, he never, he, he, I think he won a third, and he was, he, he, he never finished out of the top five, almost never. That's crazy. So it was just really, and especially when you think, when you look at how deep golf is, how big golf is, how global it is, and it should be mathematically impossible for him to have been as much better than everyone else yeah. uh, as, as he actually was. Yeah. Uh, okay, wait. So, so going back, so, so you, Jack Stevens says, do you, now is the money there or is it like, you're just like, whatever, I don't care. Wait, say, say again. When, when you, when you are talking, when you're doing the hardball negotiation with Jack Stevens, is the money there or is it just like, are you just doing it because you're going to do it no matter what? No, he had, uh, he had some idea of what I'd gotten from my most recent book and, what the advance had been for that. And he, it was actually, he didn't, it was what the number that Tardy had given him was actually lower than it was. So, um, but, but it was fine. What we talked about was fine. So, yeah. uh, and the original idea was that the book was just going to be for members. Yeah. I'm surprised um, it was able to be published actually. Well, it was, it was, the original idea was that it would just be for the members. And, uh, cause he didn't, you know, he just wanted them to know, he wanted a history that, that they would have access to. But as we got into it, and which was fine with me, but as we got into it, I told, I said, you know, this stuff is so great. Nobody knows any of this. Nobody knows this stuff about uh, how hard it was to get the club going, all the things that that had to be done to make the tournament a success. You know, it's just everything is brand new, and nobody knows it. So you should, we should really do this as a, you know, a trade book for the public. Uh, for the public. And he was fine with that. And so then the club's general manager and I went around, we talked to publishers and, and, and uh, Simon and Schuster ended up publishing it. And, but it is, it's, it's great stuff. You know, people at the time, you watch the masters on TV and I think people still assume this. You watch the masters on TV and you assume it's always been like this. You know, the club has always been like this, but you know, when it started, they, they, 
completely infatuated with Bobby Jones. Actually, like, can we uh, can we just zoom out and just just give like you you have a great way of defining Clifford Roberts, I imagine. Can you just sort of because I want to talk about him specifically. T- okay, t- tell sure. us who he is. Uh, he had the shittiest childhood you could have. He grew up in a uh, uh, he grew up in a whole bunch of different places. Born in the eighteen hundreds um, or something. Yeah, born in the eighteen hundreds. He had a, a poor childhood. His father was kind of a serial uh, scammer, and he fell for stuff. He was always going off. He, he he was always going off with some new venture. He would just when he would start to be semi successful at something, he would sell whatever that was and start something else. He was always sending back instructions to his wife. You know, pack up everything, roll up the linoleum uh, <laughs> on the floor, and get on the. Tr- train and bring the children to this next place where I bought an, an orange farm or something like that. You know, it's just this next crazy idea that's going to make us money. Or he would he would buy these train loads of <laughs> like flour and shoes and things like that and then try to do it. So it was a, uh, Clifford worked for money for the family starting when he was like seven or eight. Uh, he, eighth grade was the last year of school he went to. He, he, he had a, a Same as me. Uh, pardon me? Same as me. Uh, yep, <laughs> just like you raising those guinea pigs. When, but it was, it was, you know, he had a bad childhood. And then when he was 16, uh, he burned down, accidentally burned down his family's house. Uh, I, I did not do that back. for the record. They were at church. He went back um, to get his gloves in the in the attic, little attic garret that he and his brother shared, and knocked over a lamp or something. And the house burned down. And uh, and then a couple of years later, his mother committed suicide. Um, she had, you read her diaries now and you see that she was clearly deeply depressed. She tried all these early 20th century, uh, you know, cures for things, including taking what were basically powerful drugs. And, and she, she killed herself. So one morning she killed herself. She wrote a little pencil note to each member of the family. Uh, How old was and, Cliff at uh, the time? Pardon me? How old was Cliff? I think he, he was in his he was still in his teens. Oh wow! I'm trying, but he uh, he she uh, held a shotgun to her chest and pulled the trigger. So in the alley behind the house. But he he uh, he went to a secretarial school. He was he supported siblings. He went off to New York and he he he, he tried to make he tried to make it in a lot of different ways. And finally, he had with the help of somebody, he had one big year uh, that where he made what would today be the equivalent of, you know, a million million dollars probably. And then, but it was right before the crash. So he lost all that money. Uh, but in, while he was in New York, um, he went to an exhibition that Bobby Jones played in and sat around afterward with a group that was, um, uh, with Jones at like a table in the clubhouse. And Jones talked about his, his dream of, there being, uh, you know, establishing a golf club in the South. The U.S. Open had never been held in the South, not close to the South before, and he, he wanted, uh, uh, you know, his dream was to create a club that, where the U.S. Open could be held in the South. And Roberts, t- Roberts took this to heart, and, 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 and actually he ended up, you know, sort of, of making it possible. He found uh, a piece of property, uh, in Augusta, Georgia, where Sorry, he had been wait, in an I, army. Can I interrupt for one second? So, of course. H- how was Cliff and Bobby in the same room? Were they were they part of the same echelon? And and like, 
At this point, uh, is Cliff what? sort of like a crazy fan, or is he a friend? Uh, no, not a friend. Not a friend yet. He's, you know, he's in, like a New York stockbroker. The world, the golf world club, it was different, you know. You go to a tournament, there weren't that many people there. Right. It, even Jones, you know, it's like in the, he wasn't quite, quite the Bobby Jones of legend yet. And, you know, just, you know, people sitting around in the, in a club where, where after he had given an exhibition. Because Bobby Jones was Tiger Woods of the 30s, right? Like, like he yeah, was the definitely. phenomenon. And Tiger, Tiger Woods and beyond, I don't, I don't think there's ever been an exact equivalent. He had two uh, ticker tape parades in New York. It was, <laughs> it, it was, he, was, uh, he was this very, incredibly glamorous. And then he had... Uh, but glamorous, he, but also had, permanent amateur and, and considered golf to be second to family, uh, to the law, family, and God, right? Sort of, and he was the the story about him is always that you know he hung up his clubs because he would always always he hung up his clubs after winning the Grand Slam and was always an amateur. But actually, what happened? What actually happened? And this was something that I found too when I was doing my research for my book. He he didn't wasn't always an amateur. He was after he he won the Grand Slam. He signed two big contracts, one with Spalding and one with Hollywood, to make instructional film, and. The USGA ruled that he was now a pro, uh, as he was by the rules of the USGA. He was and now a back, professional. But, but back then, being a pro was different than it is now. It was definitely, and if Jones once dismissed pl- uh, golf pros as uneducated club servants, there was you <laughs> go to a tournament and there would be gentlemen and players. The gentlemen were the amateurs. There were guys like Jones, you know, the the amateur players. Pros were guys who who you know had golf shops, who worked at clubs, who gave lessons, or who if they were, uh, you know, gave exhibitions if they were farther up the, the food chain. But it was a, you know, it was guys with, they were looked down upon by, by, by amateurs. Right. Uh, and who were the, who were gentlemen. And Jones was, you know, in addition to everything else, he was, you know, he was kind of a snob and he did not want, he would not play as a professional. So there was, that was the reason that he stopped competing because he was not willing to compete uh, as uh, as a, as the professional that the USGA had ruled that he was. Uh, that became an issue in 1934. But the, Augusta, they start this club. They found a piece of property with help of some sort of civic leaders in Augusta. They were they acquired it. So Cliff found and it basically. Idea, Cliff and Jones, or was there a couple others? Oh, there was there were some others. Uh, okay. There was there were some others. There was there was a, a, a small group of people who were interested in this project, and none of them lived and, in Augusta. Uh, no, they did. They actually, there was people in Augusta who. who uh, that's not mm. true. It was pe- people in Augusta who were the, who were uh, very much behind it too. And then also, Augusta was a resort town. Uh, it, there were uh, other supporters. Of, there was a there's a right next to Augusta National is Augusta Country Club, which in yeah. those days had two golf courses. Uh, there was 36 holes. Before, That's before a the, Ross, right? I don't. <laughs> oh no, so. I don't know. David, I played it. It's actually really quite nice. Um, yeah, it is. There used to be there used to be two courses there. Uh, there were 36 holes. They had to get they had to they had to get rid of one of the 18s during the Great Depression. But the people at Augusta Country Club were very interested in the. Uh, in the idea of founding a golf club right next door because they, it was like, you know, it, it's like if you're um, Myrtle Beach and somebody else is going to build another golf, yeah, golf sure. course, 
it makes it more of a destination. And so they, they, Augusta was very interested in being a golf destination for people from the north. And the reason it was attractive as a golf destination was that it was in the south, but you could get there. You could take the train overnight from New York and arrive in time oh, to play golf. This is like pre-air travel. Pre-air travel, yes, exactly. Wow. It was it was conveniently situated for for people from other places, and then it was also you know it was nice weather. It was conveniently situated for people who lived in Atlanta as well. Uh, but be, because Roberts was so infatuated with Jones and idolized him, he assumed that everybody did, and in a way, everybody did. I mean, he was like he was super glamorous. Well, they they would at least. Pardon me. They would. It's, they would. They would come to idolize Jones. Yes. They, well, they, they were. He was no. He was, this was. They were doing this after Jones had won the Grand Slam. So Jones was like the biggest sports hero ever. And Roberts assumed that everybody would want to be a member of his club. The difficulty was, and the original plan was for like seventeen hundred members, eighteen hundred members, two golf courses, uh, an enormous clubhouse uh, with a huge locker room for, for men and a huge locker room for women. And there were going to be bridal trails and tennis courts. It was going to be this, and it was going to cost very little to join. Wait, no way. This so was, the, was it, was it a financial enterprise for, for Cliff? I, this was, what this was, was wanting to execute Bobby Jones's dream of creating a championship golf course in the South where the U S open could be played. And their model was actually Pasatiempo in California. I love that course. Was all these things. It was designed by Alistair McKenzie. The landscaping was done by Olmsted Brothers. The, mm-hmm. It had did Central Park. bridal trails and tennis courts and houses all around it. The, Augusta, the original plan for Augusta, there were going to be houses all around it. It was going to be a real estate development as well. No way. And the idea was, the idea was, not, was not to be a great uh, you know, financial enterprise. The idea was to be this monument to, to the great Bobby Jones, to a, a golf course that would be worthy of its association with Jones. And Jones was interested both because he wanted a course where the Open could be played in the South, but also because he wanted a place where he himself could play. He, he was such a celebrity that it was, you know, he'd, he'd go, he heard her dog. Got a dog. He'd go to, uh, he'd go to a golf course and, and just, it would be impossible because there would be too many people who wanted to, who wanted to see him. So he was interested in a sanctuary outside of Atlanta, which is where he lived. Right. So there were all these reasons, but... It was the Great Depression, and even though it caught, you know, the, you, you could your your the dog that was just barking could have joined the club <laughs> at that time. It was three hundred and fifty dollars was the was the fee to join to buy a share of stock in Augusta National Golf Club. Wow! The annual dues the annual dues were a hundred dollars. Uh, the um, and yet, in three years of trying, they sent out tens of thousands of invitations to people. In three years of trying, they signed up 76 people out of the <laughs> 1,800 that they were looking for. And Why? Because um, it wasn't cool yet? Is this, is this the birth of cool? What's going on? Well, it was, it was the Depression. Even people, they had, uh, people who signed up would drop out. It was, you know, it wasn't, if you were coming from someplace else, it wasn't, you know, it was, it was, wasn't very expensive, but you had to get there. And people, you know, the the economy was a wreck. It was the worst conceivable time to start a golf club. 
Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason, and we have a couple of podcasts. If you you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy, and we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. Uh, they managed to raise, the, the original idea was they were going to raise a whole lot of money. They raised $100,000, basically, from, from, they had some, some, people who guaranteed loans and they were able to build the golf course. They built the golf course, uh, for a hundred thousand dollars. And, uh, the, but they still had this, you know, in three years they had nobody had joined basically. And so the idea was that in order to put it on the map, they had to get a U.S. open. And so the USGA had the USGA come to look and the USGA said, well, maybe sometime, but not yet, because in order to have the open there, they would have had to completely change the schedule. The time to play golf there is in the spring. Uh, the that meant that they had to would have would have, USGA would have had to completely redo its qualifying schedule. It would have had to move the tournament to a different time of the year. It would have been hard for the pros who were just at that elsewhere in the country. That was exactly when they were setting up their golf shops for the new season. So they it was going to be trouble for them, and so they said no. Maybe sometime, but not this year, not 1934. And then Roberts decided, well, then we'll put on our own tournament. <laughs> and, uh, Be which just is what invitational. And then, then in order to, but in order to do it, in order to make anybody pay attention to it, Jones had to play. Jones had to be in it. And that was a problem because he, he, he was a pro and he did not, he didn't want to be, uh, he didn't, he wasn't going to compete as a pro. And so Roberts came up with the solution, which was that there would be no distinction made in any of the schedules or, you know, T-sheets or anything like that between uh, professionals and amateurs, no asterisk next to the name of the amateurs. And Jones agreed to play. And I think he might have, it's conceivable that he would have agreed anyway. Uh, but he... I think the deception probably was necessary, uh-huh. and he the without him, and, and then the tournament was built. But you know, this is the return of the great Bobby Jones. Come and see the great Bobby Jones. He, Jones was also worried that he was going to disappoint people by playing poorly. Uh, I, I, that, I'm worried about that too myself. So he was, you know, he was a kind of a reluctant participant, but he agreed. And if you go back, if you look at the, you know, now people will say, why, why isn't Jones was the among the amateurs in the tournament? Jones had the lowest score. Why isn't he list? Why wasn't he the low given the low amateur prize in that tournament? Hmm. And the reason that is that he was not he was not an amateur. He was a professional. And if you go and look at newspaper accounts, contemporary newspaper accounts, 1934 of the tournament. It lists the amateurs and it lists the pros, and there's Jones with the pros because he, he was a pro. It was just that he hated that label, and for the sake of this tournament, he agreed uh, to compete. Now, but just so, to dig to dig one little bit, did he hate that label? Like, what do you make of him hating that label? Is that is is that like a is that a bad thing, or is that just where does that come from? I think it's just of that of that time, and yeah. he was a you know he was a he was a. He came from he came from a very privileged uh, background, and he didn't want to be. He viewed golf pros as sort of uh, scandalous, uh, as and as 
Uh, you know, oh, he's saying I don't do it for money. I do it because yeah, right. I, love I don't it. do it for money. And he looked down on he looked down on golf oh, pros. He didn't okay. want to be. He wasn't listed with them, so he didn't want to be listed with them. But it was. It's a kind of a distinction that doesn't doesn't make as much sense to people now. It's right. Like, uh, you know, it took Walter Hagen who, you know, barged into you know the golf pros. You play a tournament. Would play at a golf club. The pros were not allowed to go into the clubhouse. Right. Yeah. The pl- Sleeping pros in the bunkers. The it was, that was for the gentlemen. The players had to, you know, they were elsewhere because they were club servants. And it was Walter Hagen who kind of broke the, the, uh, that. Uh, so okay, so let's we, we we I want to fast forward if that's okay, um, to you know, the, Cliff Roberts basically invents to some extent the modern golf tournament with things like the leaderboard. He comes up with the name the Masters. Can you give me a little background on things like that? Yeah, when they started, they had no money. The golf course wasn't in good shape. They had no clubhouse. So they had they borrowed sixty six chairs from two local funeral homes. Uh, they got some help. They got some money help from the city of Augusta because Augusta had great hopes for this tournament. They uh, they um, they had people hawking, selling tickets on the street, and in order to get people to come, Roberts came up with lots of innovations. One of them was to conduct the tournament over four days instead of three. In those days, the golf tournaments were three days. You played 36 holes on Saturday. It was like blue laws. You know, no one plays on Sunday. They spread it over four days. They sold tickets to the practice rounds. They sold tickets to the, to the whole week. It was like a dollar for the, five dollars for the week or something like that. He scheduled, uh, they scheduled, uh, they spread the, the star players in through the schedule so that you could if you had to drive all morning to get there you could come you could buy lunch for cheap as you still can and then you would be assured of watching being able to watch a uh, sort of a showcase group going off after lunch it wouldn't be that everybody would, had gone out in the morning and they were all finished hmm. uh, he they every year all the money any money that the tournament made which at first was negative money they couldn't even pay they couldn't even pay the winner the, the, at, at first they passed the hat to collect this tiny, no tiny way. purse uh, among it, and, and it was nothing. I mean, the whole the purse was nothing. Uh, they paid, and they only paid. I think it was ten places uh, uh, out of this. This is it's still know, called here, at this point. It's still called the Augusta Invitational, right? Yes, it was called the Augusta the Augusta, Augusta National Invitation Tournament, right? Uh, for several years, and then it was in four, Jones thought the name Masters was too uh, pretentious, and sports writers. It was from the very beginning. There were sports writers who referred to it as the Masters, but it didn't officially become the name uh, until a few years later. I think thirty-nine, maybe. So, so who uh, is there a credit for who coined the name? Uh, I don't think so. I think wow. I don't know how it. I don't know how it popped up, but it uh, that was a it was that name was floating around from the start, and okay. then it became the official name a few years later. Um, but every you know the any Roberts was constantly looking. What can we do? Uh, what can we do to make it better? All through the years, and so late, you go into the later years. The reason all those cups are green is that they you don't see them on color TV when they or on TV when people drop if they drop litter during the the tenth no. of a second before somebody comes over and picks it up. It, you know you don't no. see it. Uh, the idea of roping entire fairways. Uh, the idea of having only players and caddies inside the ropes. Uh, the the scoreboards when the uh, the the, having they had a, a telephone system that made it possible to uh, transmit scores across the course instantaneously, so you could go, you could you could fig, you could figure it out. That you 
know, you knew who was who was doing what, no matter where you were on the course, and people could you could then go to wherever the action was. Uh, the um, this innovation after innovation, and then they would they would change the course to when they were in a position to make changes to the course, they would change it to make it better for uh, to make it better for spectators. They um, made like mounds they, and things. Yeah, they would make mounds, or they would remove mounds. They would move greens. They would reorient holes. That the I remember when the club was making some changes to the tournament to the course in the early 2000s, and there were people on the Golf Channel who were saying, "This is Robertson Jones will be turning in their graves." Well, it's not true. That the course has been a work in progress since the very beginning, and it's how uh, Jones used to say that it was a course of national design. That sort of every great architect, golf architect, has. Uh, throughout the years has had a hand in there uh, and the uh, you know whoever the whoever the contemporary great was would call in and do work and they, they, they took suggestions from players from from spectators uh, you know Roberts insisted on calling spectators patrons and the idea was that, that, that they were the patrons of this turn they made this tournament possible and that was like that was a core belief for him wow. and they, they 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 still do that Um so, so it's a, more about Roberts. I guess I, I have one overarching question about Roberts because he's so, you know, he's noted kind of like as three things, right? He, he, uh, he's responsible for so much of what we today experience as the Masters. Um, he's also, you know, the, the, when you Google him, one of the main quotes that comes up has to do with race relations that uh, a lot of people would say, you know, he didn't, he wasn't really motivated by anything other than, you know, being a product of his era. And then the third thing is obviously, uh, his, um, his death. And so when beyond that though, you probably feel very close to him, even if you haven't met him, what, what is your feelings on this person? The, 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 the thing that struck me was how everybody I met who had known him loved him. There was a, a guy who was the chairman of I think he was the chairman of GE. When Roberts died, he quit. He quit the club because he said it just wouldn't be, uh, it just wouldn't be the same uh, if he were there. The quote that you Googled, that you come up with where he says something like, you know, as, as long as I'm alive, the, you know, the caddies will be black and the players will be white or, or something like that. As far as I know, he never said it. You, it it's, it, it's like many of the stories about Roberts, it's sports writers quoting sports writers. Uh, Wait, are you serious? Talk, that's so unfair. Pardon me? Are, are, that, that's that's um, that's fucked up. I don't. That's 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 very sad to think that something because it's a it's a pretty insightful uh, it, it, with a C inciting. It's, it incites a certain emotion, especially today when people are on Wikipedia uh, or the internet in general reading about things. And golf has a bad rap already for being, right. um, you know, so exclusive. So so that's sad. I mean, so. There's no way to know that he said it or didn't say it. I guess. No, but it doesn't. It doesn't fit in with with. It doesn't fit with the way he actually was. And if you one of the, when I was there, the you talked to caddies who had been uh, who had been there through the Roberts through for many years who had overlapped with Roberts. They 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 were his biggest fans. He was it was a great job and Roberts was supportive of the caddies and if a player stiffed the caddy in the tournament Roberts would would take him aside so but how do you reconcile Roberts from it how do you I never heard a bad thing about Roberts from anybody at the club 
But what about the Charlie Sifford issue with him um, attempting to play and being turned down? Is that is that sort of a non, um, you know, what do they call it when you're um, uh, affirmative action? You know, was he or what what was that? Sifford is just completely wrong uh, about about all of that. If you go back and if no one who has ever qualified for that tournament has failed to receive an invitation to play in it. Okay. And if you go back and you look at the the published the, the Qualifications have always been published and have been public. And at the beginning, at the beginning, they, they, <laughs> it was just about anybody. The, the, through the 30s, the, the field constant steadily shrank uh, through the 30s. It was a small tournament to begin with, and it got smaller through the Depression after the sort of the initial thrill of Jones playing wore off. But it was always things like, you know, the top so many players in the, U- the previous year's U.S. Open, the top so many in the British Open, top so many in the British Amateur, U.S. Amateur. Through the years, as those the uh, you know it, golf was not a welcoming game to uh, non-whites through that period, and so those black players were not appearing high in those tournaments. As in the 19th, throughout the 60s, if you look at through the Sifford period, if you look at the qualifications, the club steadily made them made those qualifications less uh, important and made it made they basically made changes in it that made it inevitable that black players would play in the uh, would play in the tournament. Sifford said, well, I won a tournament I wasn't invited. Winning a tournament did not become, uh, I think it was 1971 when winning a tournament became a qualification for appearing in the Masters. And uh-huh. In my book, I have a list. There's, list. There are dozens of players, players who even won two PGA Tour events in one year who were not invited to the Masters. Right. And the reason then was that the PGA Tour was kind of a it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the, those were not necessarily, you could win a PGA, it was like winning a, they were not the tournaments that they are today. Right. But as this steadily went along, there were also for years, there was the players themselves had, uh, were able to vote the, for the, for, the, I can't remember for the, the, uh, uh, you know, they could pick up a, a player who ought to, who ought to be invited. Oh, they could nominate. Not, had not qualified otherwise. The previous winners could, Previous winners could pick, uh, and the the only Art Wall is the only uh, is the only previous winner who ever voted for a black player to, to pick. You know that I think that there's there's a tendency of people in the North to think that race is a Southern problem. It's not uh, you know racism is a Southern phenomenon, and so I think a lot of the 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 racial uh, the serious racial um, uh, benightedness of golf is people tend, in the, especially in the North, tend to focus it on the South, and so nobody ever says, "Why didn't Why didn't Arnold Palmer ever speak up for black golfers during the period during this period? Why didn't Jack Nicklaus ever speak up? Uh, why were they not? Uh, why did they not speak out against the PGA of America's?" Uh, uh, ban on non-Caucasian in its constitution on non-Caucasian players. Um, the I think that the the the, the idea that this is that um, well, I just it's it's unfortunate. Mm, interesting. I mean, golf has golf has a lot of sins regarding race and and, and other things too to answer for, but it's it is completely 
ahistorical to think that the Masters was, you know, all the talk about the race, racial barrier at the Masters is completely wrong. Well, my only experience, uh, I, I did actually communicate with Charlie Sifford before he passed away. And I asked him for an interview. And of all the hundreds of people that I've requested an interview from, he was the only person who said, of course, it'll be a thousand dollars. And I was like, uh, that's what? No, that's not how this works. I'm not, it's not an advertisement. I just, I want to talk to you about you. Um, so it's interesting that anyway, who knows what really happened, but moving on. Well, I, 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 know, I do know what really happened. Sifford won the Canadian open, uh, and felt that he should have been invited to the masters because the, uh, the, the, there had been previous winners of the Canadian open who'd been invited. There was always a different, uh, uh, one of Roberts's contributions to golf was to uh, make it help make it an international game. They went out of their way to find players in other countries and bring them to the United, take care of them when they were in the United States to make it possible. You know, this was a, in the early years. It was an era when you did not just casually cross the Atlantic to play in a golf tournament for no money. Sure. Uh, the and but the although it was true that. It was Canadian winners of the Canadian Open who had been invited by virtue of being, uh, um, by virtue of, of being international players. American winners of the Canadian Open had ne- that had never been a qualification. And as I said, there were you go back through the whole history of the tournament. There were right through that period and beyond until they began inviting uh, any tournament winner. Uh, there were uh, there were dozens and dozens of multiple. T- you know, two tournaments in a year winners who, who nevertheless did not qualify to play in the Masters. And when when the, the when Augusta National adopted that requirement that all you had to do was have won a PGA Tour event, it was obvious that that was going to uh, uh, it was obvious that that was that you know black players were winning PGA were going, they were going to win PGA tournaments. They were it was it was going to make it more likely, not less likely that that there would be a black competitor in the Masters. And Robert said, and it was certainly true, and there's no reason not to believe that that the Masters was the loser uh, for it not having happened before Lee Elder in 1975. Hmm. uh, Let let me just clarify. When I said who knows what happened, I meant more who knows what happened within Charlie Sifford's own experience uh right. not no, I, I love that you're a historian and you know these facts yeah. that that's i wasn't dispat- disputing that and nobody said you know nobody had a worse experience in golf than charlie sifford and you go back and you read some of the stuff like you know finding shit in a in a golf hole in a tournament and the, the stuff that those Whoa. guys endured it's unbelievable and it's it's a total scandal but jones but you know Sifford used to say that Jones had sent him this terrible letter. I've read, read the letter. Jones said, you know, we, we, you, when there is no race requirement at the Masters, anybody who qualifies will play. You will Which play. was maybe radical at the time. Was that radical at the time? Uh, eh, I, you know, I don't know. But the players by that, you know, there were black players by that point in PGA, in PGA Tour events. Uh, it's just it had happened that no... None of these, none of them had yet managed to hit one of these, one of the the categories. But as I said, through that whole, through the '60s, the club was constantly making it more likely, not less likely, by reducing the number that went to past winners of the 
you know, the U.S. Open, for example, which uh, the past winners of the U.S. Open were all white. So you, by steadily reducing the number of those and increasing the number based on finishes in, uh, you know, where they finished in, in, in other tournaments and in, they were making it steadily more likely rather than making it less. So it's, it's a different picture from what's usually said. Right. And I said, I think, you know, Sifford, you, you know, you wouldn't want to live the, the, the golf life that Sifford lived or that Lee Elder lived that, you know, it was, it was, it was brutal. And, and I think, and I'm sure that Augusta National looked like an intimidating place. It's, you know, it's this former plantation in the South. Nevertheless, you know, I think if you, if you look at Jones who had a tremendous, um, you know, he was Mr. Fair, Mr. Sportsman. So it would have been utterly unlike uh, yeah. either of them to um, to to be uh, to have created uh, to have created this uh, you know the secret requirement that would, that okay. would make it impossible. So let's fast forward again. I mean, I'm just I'm enjoying this conversation deeply. Um, I want to just get to a particular day, and I believe is it 1983 uh, when Cliff. Wakes up in the morning, gets his hair cut, writes a letter, and then uh, decides to. Uh, well, you tell the story. Well, it was in the 1970s. Uh, 1977, 1976. I thought 77 he, uh, was when he was when he resigned. No, he he uh, no. Oh. Uh, he. Anyway. Wait, I can. I'm I referring. Can look it up. Okay, <laughs> we're gonna get this right. If you're listening. These are all facts. <laughs> uh, I should have it here. Well, no, he was he was a he was a he had had some he had had some uh, health issues. Uh, the uh, he uh, and I think one of the ideas is that he had seen the word dementia on his uh, chart at um, the hospital in Texas where he had gone for some heart problems, and. Uh, he was ill. He Jack Stevens sent his airplane to bring him back to Augusta. He came back. Um, he he had dinner that night. He had a massage, and then at some time during the night, he he shot himself, and then he went down by the um, uh, uh, by a pond down by in the area where um, the par three course is, and shot himself in the head, and left a brief note uh, to his wife. Uh, and that was it. Now he was, he was one of the la- very last things that he did was he had his, the, his, the, the, his usual waiter at the club help him walk out to the first tee so that he could look up the first fairway and, and be assured that a house, the only house they, you know, they tried to sell building lots on the, on the adjacent to the course for 20 years. And, and the, there was only one person that ever bought, bought one. And it was, and built a house, a big house just beyond the first green, which you could see, uh, you know, from the 1930s until 1976 or 1977, you could see it looking up the fairway. Anyway, Roberts wanted to be assured that the club had finally managed to acquire it and tear it down. And Roberts wanted to be sure that it was gone. And then he he had, was helped back to his room. And sometime during that night, he went down to the by the pond and on the bank of the pond shot himself. Um, the uh, with typical, I think, uh, concern, he shot himself in a place that was not would not be was not any place where any, any of the tournament took place. So it wouldn't become, you know, sort of a haunted spot during the masters. Uh, but it was, I think it was, it was sort of, uh, typical of him. You know, he, he, he assessed his, <laughs> he, he had seen his 
chemistry was. He'd seen his chart. Uh, he was not in good health, and and so he ended his life. And it, we, eerily, I mean, his his suicide note is not that unlike the one that his mother left for him. It was, you know, just written in pencil and short, and and that was it. Now he was so frail at that time that there's some. Uh, it seems likely that he probably had help from a night watchman or something to take him down to that part of the course. Um, uh, he, he owned a pistol. He had it. He had his waiter show him, or he had somebody show him how to load it, load it, because um, he said that he'd heard heard things out, you know, stirring around. But um, uh, yeah. there were, you know, people. There's this other sports writer stories that somebody, you know, somebody in the club finished him off in the morning, but that's obviously not not. That's clearly not true. That's more sports writer tales. See, I think when I, I've had a few different experiences, right, um, of, with myself and my reaction to the story. The first is, oh, my goodness. You know, when, when you hear suicide on the par three course, right, that's a headline. And my first thought is, oh, wow, the guy was drunk and he had an ex-girlfriend and a mistress. And you just think a screenplay starts to get written in my head, you know, Um <laughs> And so then you dig and you find out, oh, wow, no, this is more matter of fact, almost like a sick dog, right? That's just not going to recover. And, and it seemed like maybe the way Cliff Roberts looked at life was very practical. And in some sense, you, you could align that with his brilliant ideas around making a golf tournament successful. He just says, okay, you know what? I've done it. I've lived my life and now, you know what? I don't really want to live in pain for six more years and not be able to play golf and whatever. And, and in a way, then I began to look at his suicide as almost noble and poetic and beautiful. What's your experience with this story? No, I, I think that's, I think that's the way it was. And I think it was, I think that the, uh, I think that it was that word dementia probably had a big impact on him. Uh, it was being, you know, Physically limited was one thing. Being mentally limited was another. And he had, you know, the way he grew up, it was surrounded by death. His father was hit by a train, was maybe a suicide. Um, his mother was a suicide. His, you know, in, you read his mother's diary, his classmates were, when he was in grade school, were, they were constantly taking flowers for because some kid had died of cholera or, or um, whatever had swept through. Uh, you know, he, he grew up, he didn't grow up like the way people do now. And he had this, and he was definitely, if you look at his whole history of the term, it was very matter of fact and very practical and, and facts is facts kind of, uh, I think it was totally in keeping, in keeping for him, uh, to decide that if, if his useful life was over, he was going to, he was going to end it and, you know, uh, it's the kind of thing that people often say they will do and don't always have the, when it comes down to it, don't always have the courage to do. So also, you, he had, you know, he had, he, he didn't have children. He, um, uh, he, he, he was married, but he, you know, he just, he, uh, I think it was very much like him to, uh, uh, to do it. So, have you, and, and so I don't think there's, I don't think there's, I don't think anybody murdered, murdered him and I don't think anybody had to, <laughs> uh, had to uh, had to finish him off the next day, and also it was you know he he tried to make it the opposite of a spectacle. It was right. The, the, uh, do you, do you so. think? I mean, but now you say that he tried to make it the opposite of a spectacle, but 
I mean, he was called the, uh, you know, the uh, chairman in memoriam. And I mean, that was obviously probably decided before he passed away. But I mean, the man is very smart. So he must be very aware of like, in a way, doing this action, right, by this sort of forgotten corner that probably the public aren't allowed during the par three course. I'm imagining it's down by that lake, uh, down by the finishing holes of the par three course. Um, I think it was actually, it was, a, it was actually the pond, a pond, the other, the other pond. Oh, uh, on the other corner of the property? It wasn't, it wasn't any place where anybody goes in the tournament. Really? Oh, it was sort of, you can't access the other side of that pond because that's where the players walk on the, um, uh, well, if you, you know, if, I'd have to, I'd, it's been 20 years since I wrote this book, but you have to go back and look and it was not on the par three course. And I think it was the other pond where he oh. was on the bank of it. And the idea was, I think it was in his mind not to be someplace where there would never be a place that would be involved in, in, uh, that would be a part of, uh, you know, would be a part of the tournament. Sure. But you must imagine, think, you know, go ahead. Well, I don't think he also, I, I don't think he, you know, like they call him chairman in perpetuity the way they call Jones president in perpetuity. If they do, it, that would not have been his doing. And it would not have, no. that would not have been anything that he was interested in. Uh, you know, his, his focus was always Jones. This is Jones's tournament. This is Jones's club. And his whole, you know, he had this obsessive, um, you know, it was this obsessive focus on making it that way. And his, I think that the thing that, to keep in mind about Roberts is that his entire experience of life uh, up through much of the club's history was of just of that you try as hard as you can and then everything goes wrong. So, you know, like, <laughs> it was like his childhood over and over again. His father was constantly losing everything. His mother killed herself. He burned down his family's house. He made some money on Wall Street and then he lost it all. They've acquired a piece of property in a, to, start this, to start Jones's Club and then they were just completely hammered by the Great Depression, uh, they got the tournament going finally. 1934 and in 1935, they had they declared bankruptcy. You know, it was, it was after hmm. the Sarazen shot her down the world. It was still it was a failing enterprise. They had to they stiffed all their creditors and started over. So it's um, I think his whole experience of life was that you you cannot you don't leave any stone unturned. You you have to try everything could disappear at any moment. He was always worried that. You know, people would stop coming to the Masters, would stop caring about it. So you had to, you had to make sure that the, you know, that the food was inexpensive. You had to make sure that the lines were short. You had to make sure that the, you know, that the reporters had the perfect place to go. You know, it always had the best uh, provision for for reporters of any of any uh, um, of any tournament, maybe of any sporting event. Hmm. The, the television broadcast always had to be the best. Uh, all because and it was this genuine fear that if anything slipped, you know, it could all just it could all disappear. Wow! Like At the his same childhood. time, he was also yeah. the, the the real his real focus was that club, uh, and he said, and it, I'm sure it's true that if you know he would give up, the, you know, if the if the tournament ever threatened the club, he would get rid of the tournament. Whoa! So, um, uh, you know. So he's a complicated person, much more complicated and interesting than the, the sort of the stories that float around make him out to be. I, what I was going to say, I mean, that's that's beautiful. What, what I was sort of starting to think was, you know, perhaps not in a grandiose way, not in a not in a selfish way, but I think almost more in a peaceful kind of like 
um, uh, you know, everlasting way, I guess. I don't, I don't know if you, whoever believes in that, but you know, he, he sort of decided cause he could have, he could have killed himself anywhere, but it seems like to do it there for him was almost like, okay, I love this more than anything else in the world. And this is what I want to die as close to here as I can, because I've spent all of my living life here. I mean, I guess I'm asking you, you must have pondered this moment over and over and over again in these times, in this library and in this wine cellar and walking around the property without any spectators. You must have thought about this, right? I mean, it's a pretty profound decision. Oh, it's, yeah, it, it's definitely, he wanted, he, it, took him, it took him some effort to get back. He wanted, it's definitely where he wanted to end his life. He, and it was, he was not in good shape. And, and it was really, he didn't really live anywhere else. He had this very modest room that they called the suite, his suite at the club, but I've stayed in it. It's like a, you know, it's like motel room size. <laughs> uh, he, he had a, he bought a place at Grandfather Mountain that was where he would be in the, uh, uh, you know, he would go uh, uh, during the summer, but he, you know, he didn't, he was not a rich guy. He did not have, uh, he did not have, uh, he did not have this huge house somewhere else. That was, Augusta National was his home, and the, he viewed his relationships with people there as his, the most important relationships of his life. So it was entirely in keeping uh, for him to um, to want to go back there. I mean, it, it now kind of hearing you say that he wasn't wealthy kind of makes me think like um, of the word devotion, you know, of him like just devoting his life essentially to this place. And so, wow, I think now if I were to hear Jack Stevens talk about Cliff Roberts, it, it, it might almost be an emotional experience because here is almost, it goes beyond religion at that point. Yeah, he, this, it, was, uh, it was definitely, it was everything to, it was definitely everything to Roberts. I, I would, I think that's, uh, you know, th- those were the relationships he valued. And uh, the you know, beginning with Jones and then, uh, you know, he, his special, uh, his special friends among the, um, among the players, it was, you know, um, Byron Nelson and Arnold Palmer were probably his two favorites, although officially he didn't have any favorites. Um, <laughs> he, it was just a, uh, it was, you know, those members that the, the, uh, the, the club tournament called the Jamboree, to him that was more important than the Masters. It was like this big member-member tournament where he was constantly putting members on, on boards, not because he, you know, he made all the decisions, so it didn't, it wasn't because he wanted their advice, but just to make them feel that they had to come, like, to the governor's meeting. You put make him a governor because then he would have to come to the weekend that was called the governor's meeting. That's, when that's brilliant. That's, that's, so. He defined social media influencer long before it occurred. <laughs> yeah, right. right. So it was, uh, it was, um, you know, he was, he was a complicated guy and you would not want to swap lives with him. It was interesting that he, he and Dwight Eisenhower became pals. I read this. Eisenhower's childhood was in many ways like Roberts's where he lived in a million different places. He wasn't sure he could put them. It was either Roberts or Eisenhower who said he, he couldn't, wasn't sure he could put them in the right or chronological order, all the places he'd lived as a kid. Ben Eisenhower was this military life where he and his wife had lived in, I think it was like 30 different places in 15 years or something like that. He never, they'd never had a home. And for him, Augusta National was the same thing. It was, it was a sanctuary as it had been for Jones. 
and it was the first group of friends that he and Mamie had, had really had, a sort of a permanent group of friends. And I, when Eisenhower was in the White House, there was, our bedroom was reserved for Roberts, and there was in a, his pajamas and toothbrush in the, in the closet. Wow. Um, and I think it was the, you know, uh, the, uh, Roberts invented, incidentally, invented the blind trust, the thing that, that uh, the current president doesn't have the idea that <laughs> that a president <laughs> a president should that his uh, his uh, you know his investment should be uh, beyond his uh, beyond his ken and that was a, an idea for he, Roberts created that for Eisenhower and it became a fixture until very recently of of uh, American political life uh, and the idea that it would be managed completely outside of his uh, by someone else for his benefit but without his knowledge of what was in it so that it could not in any way affect his, uh, um, that was, a, that was a, um, you know, Roberts was a, was a shrewd, interesting guy. And, uh, uh, as I say, much more interesting than the, the kind of sports writer tales that, um, are all sort of distorted, simplified versions of what the, the real stuff was. Beautiful. Um, we have, I, I feel like I've talked your ear off, uh, so much, um, I, I would just like to end on. Um, do you have a do you have like a golf quote that kind of remo- that you think about, or, or a quote, a life quote that you think about? <laughs> oh uh, no! <laughs> <laughs> I guess and writers that, aren't allowed to. <laughs> yeah. How about you? What's what? What's yours? There you go. Jeez, uh, mine. Um, I, well, funny enough, I actually was thinking last night. You know, you know what, is that, what is that quote? It's not the someone. Someone's. I saw something somewhere. It's not the. It's not the years in your life that matter. It's the life in your years. And I was thinking the golf version of that could be, it's not the, uh, the game that you play, but it's not the, it's not the, what is it? It's not the shots in your game, but the game in your shots. That's what I was thinking. Anyway. Well, all right. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm not a pro by any means as far as making quotes, but, um, well, anyway, I, I'm sad to hear that you're not going to be at the Masters. So I, I would love to meet you at some point as soon as possible. This has been such a wonderful um, educational experience for me, inspiring. Well, good. Thank you. Uh, thank you for doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're ever going to find yourself in New York or Los Angeles, or actually, if you're going to ever be at Augusta and need a fourth, I would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's been a while. So, uh, they've sort of the, uh, my, uh, Oh, my, uh, my little moment there was, was in the past, but it was great while it lasted. Yeah. I'm hoping to get, uh, the lottery is, um, you know, I'll be, I'm going to go there with Ashley and, and the golf digest crew and have these media credentials. So I'm hoping to, uh, to win the lottery. <laughs> so we'll see. Uh, terrific. Yeah. yeah. Um, so put me yeah. in your prayers. Fingers crossed. Yeah. yeah. Worth doing. It's fun. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, an interesting, one of the many interesting things about that golf course is that you know, there were a couple. I, the most fun time to play this right before the tournament, when the tournament is is almost in tournament shape, and there aren't that many people there, and when the course is almost in tournament shape. And the uh, amazing thing, and this was intentional, Jones used to say this that he Jones's idea of the ideal golf course, and McKenzie was that. You could build a golf course that would be challenging to the best players in the world, and yet uh, players, you know, you know, a 70-year-old Augusta National member could go out when the 
course, was in the same condition and have possibly, you know, one of his best rounds ever. And that has always been, been true. And it's, you think about that golf course, it's, you know, it tests the greatest players in the world. At the same time, you know, there's not much in the way of out of bound. There's not a lot of, you can be a short hitter and stay out of trouble. Uh, the, um, you know, the greens are problematic, but all greens are problematic for handicapped players. So <laughs> for me, <laughs> the, it's unlike where I was just at Sawgrass on a golf practice assignment and, and played the course in the tournament tees, and it's just completely impossible. There, it's it, it's just so hard. Uh, I mean, I did it for the purpose of humiliating myself for a golf practice assignment, but it's 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 different from it's very different, and it's a it's a so Augusta National represents this very different idea of you know and I think a very appealing idea of how you can make a golf course that can simultaneously be a challenge to very good players and yet not completely destroy and humiliate players who are not great right so I I hope you enjoy it yeah I hope I find that out and don't prove me wrong by being really terrible (laughs) I have that uh, potential always within me (laughs) Um, All right. Well, thank you so much, David. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Okay, great. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Uh, Bye-bye.